Well, we're going to begin with a pop quiz. I never do this, but uh, I love doing pop quizzes with the community group, and so we're going to do a pop quiz this morning. Uh, this is a closed phone, closed Google pop quiz, so there's no cheating. So who was the longest reigning monarch in history? This is multiple choice, so you can raise your hand if, if you think that the longest reigning monarch in history was Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, she just recently died. Got a lot of hands. Or was it the man with great hair, the King of France, King Louis XIV? I see no hands. Or was it King Louis Nineteenth? And I see... No hands. I see one hand. No? I was just someone fixing their hair. Okay. Well, if you guessed Queen Elizabeth II, you'd be very close, but you'd be wrong. Queen Elizabeth was the longest reigning British monarch. And she reigned for 70 years from 1953 to 2022. Um, but if you guessed King Louis XIV... You'd be correct, and no one did. At least you were too shy to lift up your hands. You'd be correct because he started his reign at the mature age of four, and he reigned for 72 years from 1643 to 1714. And uh, you'll be happy that you didn't guess King Louis the nineteenth, uh, because if you did, you would have picked the guy who actually can claim the shortest reign of any monarch in history. His reign lasted for about 20 minutes on August 2nd, 1830. This was during the July Revolution. King Charles X was forced to abdicate, which technically put Louis next in line. That is until he signed the same document of abdication about 20 minutes later. But some of you answered none of the above, I'm sure. You didn't raise your hand, you answered none of the above, and you get extra credit. Because I'm sure that the reason you didn't pick any of these three is because King Jesus has been on his throne for better than 2,000 years. And he is the only monarch of whom it can be said, truly said, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. King Jesus. And that's about where we left off last week, Jesus reigning at the right hand of the majesty on high. We're studying the book of Hebrews this year, and if you're working through Hebrews at 10 verses a day, like I suggested a few weeks, a few weeks back, you should be nearly finished with your first pass through the book. By the end of the year, you will have meditated through all of Hebrews 12 times, and some of you may even have it memorized by then. We're still in chapter 1, and here's what we have learned thus far. In verses 1 through 4, the author tells his readers that long ago, God spoke in a variety of ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The author then lays out a mind-bending picture of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and where Jesus is now seated, His nature his work, and his exalted status. 
Then in verses 5 to 14, he unfolds all of that. And he does that in parallel with the first three verses. And we're finishing up that first parallel, the parallel between the middle of verse 2 and verses 9 through 5. In verse 2, we see Jesus as the heir of all things. And the author unfolds that in verses 5 through 9 by stringing together Old Testament pearls. We walked through four of those last week. From Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, we saw that Jesus is the Son of God and the royal heir, something that cannot be said of the angels. From Deuteronomy 32, we saw that Jesus is the object of all worship. And that too is something that cannot be said of angels. In fact, even glorious, awe-inspiring, terrifying heavenly beings like angels are themselves commanded to worship Jesus. Then from Psalm 104, we saw that Jesus is enthroned, ruling over all things. Angels, by contrast, are merely servants. Like wind and flames of fire, they do the bidding of the Almighty. That's where we left off last week. Now we come to verses 8 and 9, and this is Old Testament text number 5. Let's read it beginning with verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That is, angels are not ruling, reigning, or giving orders, and they are merely servants. And the contrast with Jesus comes now in verse 8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. When you come to a text like this, that's clearly a quote from somewhere else in the Bible, I encourage you to look it up. And see for yourself what it says in the Old Testament. The text of the original quote usually will shed some light on what you're reading. In this case, the cross-reference tells you that it's being quoted from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. So let's turn there together and see this in its original context. Psalm 45, we'll do a quick sketch of the psalm. It's only 17 verses long. Psalm 45, from the ascription, that's the information given below the title, you learn four things about this psalm. First, you learn that the tune is according to lilies. I have no idea what a lily sounds like, but that's the tune. That's the tune not only to this psalm, but also to Psalm 69 and 80, and that is the tune. Number two, you learn that it's a mascal which is a kind of song that's thought to be for teaching or for instruction, though no one knows for certain what that word actually means. Number three, you learn that the writers or the singers here are the sons of Korah. That's the family of singers that David put in charge of the service of song for the tabernacle in Jerusalem. These singers are also gatekeepers and bakers. They're the ones who baked the flat cakes and the showbread 
for the tabernacle. And four, you learn the occasion of this song. Now, this gives you some real insight. This is a love song. In fact, as you'll see, it's a love song for a royal wedding. Following the ascription, the psalm begins with a glimpse into the heart of the poet himself. His heart is bursting with joy over the glory of this royal wedding and the gravity of what it all means. Even in English, the opening words are lovely. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. The poet then takes you on a journey of praise, a journey of praise through three movements. Praise for the royal groom in verses seven, two, to, 2 to 9. Praise for the royal bride in verses 10 to 15. And then the promise of sons and of enduring praise for the king in verses 16 and 17. In verse 2, the poet addresses the king. No one knows exactly which king this is, but it's certainly a king in the line, in the royal line of King David. Listen to verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. And catch this phrase. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Many have wondered if the Apostle Paul had those very words in mind when he wrote to the Romans of Christ who is God, blessed forever. I suspect they were. The poet's praise for the royal groom continues to the end of verse 9. The king is splendid and majestic and mighty in war. The king is victorious for the cause of truth, for meekness and for righteousness. And the king is triumphant over all his enemies. And then comes the two verses quoted by the author of Hebrews. Verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And we'll come back to those two verses. For now, just note that they are almost word for word how the author of Hebrews quotes it in chapter 1. In the second movement, the poet turns and addresses the royal bride. Verse 10, hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. This seems to be the flip side of Genesis 2. When a man marries, he's supposed to leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. In the old King James language, he is to leave and cleave. But here, it is the bride who is told to leave and forget her people and her father's house. And this might also be a clue that the bride here is a foreigner. Verse 11, And the king will desire your beauty, since he is your Lord, bow down to him. Now, if that made some of you ladies recoil, understand that this was the king. He was actually a king, and so she was to bow down to him. The poet then paints a picture of the bridal train. 
from the bridal chamber to the palace. Verse 13, all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. These are like bridesmaids. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Now this presentation, this procession and this presentation to her husband is not merely a formality of ancient weddings. This is the picture the Apostle Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 11 of believers being presented as a pure virgin to Christ. It's the reason Jesus reconciled alienated and hostile evildoers in his body of flesh by his death on the cross. He did that in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So as you read this wedding song, it is right and even necessary to read it in light of what God has unveiled by his son in these last days. This is Jesus presenting the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This mystery of marriage is profound, says Paul. It refers to Christ and the church. So as you read this psalm, or the next time you go to a wedding and the bride in her white dress enters the church doors, walks down the aisle and is presented to her groom, marvel at what is really happening and what it really means. And think of that day when you, church, will be presented in purity, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb to your King, to be in his glorious presence forever. But that's a sermon for another day. For the poet's third and final movement, he turns again to the king and he prophesies, in the place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. From this union of husband and wife will come a line of royal sons for the throne. And the name of this king will be remembered and praised forever and ever among all the nations. And with that, you are now ready to narrow your focus to verses 6 and 7. I want you to notice two things about this before we flip back to Hebrews. First, when you see the, the use of the old O, as in O God, that's the translator's way of telling you who or what is being addressed. Usually it's really obvious, like when Jesus addresses his disciples, O you of little faith. Or when Paul says, O death, where is your sting? In this verse, the author is signaling that he is addressing the king. And he calls the king God. Your throne, O God. Now, that is very unusual. To our ears, it sounds at least exaggerated, if not nearly blasphemous, to call the king God. It's not blasphemous, but it surely 
could sound that way because the scriptures everywhere teach that there is only one God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The poet understands that, but he is speaking what the Spirit of Christ in him is indicating. And though it's rare, the Old Testament does use this generic word for God at times to refer to judges, vice regents of God who level his just, just judgments and execute his justice. So in one sense, this is D.A. Carson explaining, in one sense, it is entirely appropriate to think of the king as the judge who is God's right hand of justice. The king is God's son, lowercase s. The king is God's son, so his justice, if he is faithful, if he is righteous, will be exercised in God's name. He is God's son exercising God's justice in God's name for the sake of God's people. So in one sense, it does make sense for the poet to speak of the king of Israel as God. He's speaking both poetically and prophetically, expressing the reality that this king is God's righteous judge. It's like what the Lord said to Moses in Exodus chapter 7. He said, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Moses, when you go down to Egypt, you'll be my representative. And it'll be my words, and you'll be leveling my righteous judgments. So in that sense, I have made you like God over Pharaoh. That's the sense in which the poet can call the king God. It gets a lot easier, though, when we get to the New Testament and we apply it to King Jesus. The second thing I want you to see here is that the poet says that the throne of this king is forever and ever. It is an eternal throne. Again, it sounds like an exaggeration. There's no throne of merely a human king that can last forever. And yet, that's what this poet claims, though it may happen through his sons who are promised to him in verse 16. So the king's eternal throne now takes us back to Hebrews chapter 1. The final point of last week's sermon was that angels are not enthroned, but Jesus is. I want to complete that thought this week with point number one. Not only is Jesus enthroned, but His is the throne that is eternal. His is the throne that is spoken of by the sons of Korah. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The author of Hebrews gives substance to what was shadowy and hard to grasp in Psalm 45. And notice that he attributes this quote, not to a poet, but to God himself. But of the son, God says. He doesn't say the poet said this and that, and yet we can apply it to Jesus. He says the one who spoke is God. That's an incredible insight into how this author viewed the writings of the Old Testament. It is God speaking. That's exactly what he said back up in verse 1. 
But of the Son, God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The real meaning behind the exaggerated language of Psalm 45 is the reality that the throne of the Son of God is eternal. The difficulties of Psalm 45 are removed when you realize that this is really about King Jesus. What was spoken by the prophet was the shadow. Jesus is the substance. Jesus is the reality to which Psalm 45 pointed. Jesus is the reality to which Isaiah pointed in that text that we love to to read during Advent of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. How long? From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. And Jesus is the reality of those precious words spoken to Mary, the mother of Jesus, by the angel. He said, your son will be great and he'll be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign. He'll reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The son of God is enthroned and he reigns forever. The 72 year reign of King Louis XIV is a drop of water in the ocean compared to the everlasting reign of King Jesus. But let's not forget that old O in this verse. It signals who's being addressed here. Your throne, O God, is forever endeavor. Again, God is speaking. God is addressing His Son, and He calls His Son God. This verse verse makes Jehovah's Witnesses very uncomfortable. But it's so clear that it cannot be denied without mutilating the plain meaning of the words here and in the words in Psalm 45. Of course, the New Testament is not shy about using the word God for Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's right side, that's King Jesus, He has made Him known. And when He beheld Jesus after the resurrection, Thomas exclaims, My Lord and my God. And you can add to those Paul to the Romans in Romans 9.5, Paul to Titus in Titus 2.13, Peter in 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, and John in 1 John 5.20, and the list goes on. And none of those can be explained away as mere poetry. What they explicitly teach is that Jesus, the Son of God, is God, a fact that can be demonstrated in many other ways as well. What's fascinating about our text this morning is that it is God who calls His Son God. And that begs point number three. The author goes on to apply to King Jesus all the praise that the original poet gave to the king on his wedding day. 
The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now think about that phrase, God, your God, has anointed you. Professor Murray Harris, who's written the best treatment of this verse that I have ever read, sees this as the most remarkable feature of these verses. He says, he says it like this, the God who addresses his son as God is also God to his son. The son who addresses, the, the God who addresses his son as God is also God to his son. The son then must be distinguished from the one who calls him God. The author does that by using the father-son distinction. As you begin to think through the profound implications of what's being revealed here, you'll begin to see why the early church fathers used such meticulous care in crafting language so that they could speak clearly and accurately about God. We are dipping our toes in the deep end of the pool this morning. To make the father-son distinction, you can simply say that the God who addresses his son as God is God the Father. And the son that God the Father addresses is God the Son. Which is why the Athanasian Creed puts it like this. The Father is God the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet they are not three gods, but one. This is the Christian teaching of the Trinity. There is one God that is one Godhead, three persons. The Westminster Shorter Catechism teaches this in very memorable language in questions eight and nine. Question eight are there more gods than one? Answer, there is but one only, the living and true God. Question nine, how many persons are there in the Godhead? Answer, there be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power, in glory, although they are distinguished by their personal properties. That is, the Son is not the Father. They are distinguished. But always keep in mind that the purpose of the author of Hebrews here is not to give you a full explanation of the Trinity. He says a lot here that opens your eyes to it, but there's a lot that he doesn't say. But it is a beautiful thing to get a glimpse at the foundation of the Holy Trinity in text like this. So, now that we have waded through all that theology, let me remind you again of what this author is doing in this section. The section runs from chapter 1, verse 1, down to chapter 2, I think, verse 18. Let me remind you what he's doing. He is leading you to the inescapable conclusion 
that because of who Jesus is and because of his infinite superiority to angels, he is in fact God, therefore you must pay closer attention to the great salvation that God has unveiled to you by his son in these last days, lest you drift away from it. Let me offer one application and then close. Because Jesus is enthroned forever, and because He is God, literally nothing has the power to separate you from His love. Nothing gets between this King and His bride. If He sets His love upon you, you can rest knowing that your standing before Him will never change. Because he will never change, being the same yesterday, today, and forever. I want you to see this for yourselves. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 34. Who is to condemn? What follows here? Is the message of great salvation that God the Father unveiled by God the Father unveiled by God the Son in these last days. This is the message with the, which the author of Hebrews wants you to pay attention to, lest you drift away from it. We're still in verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Mark the exaltation of God the Son. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If that's what Jesus accomplished for his bride by a bloody and humiliating death on a Roman cross, and if through his death he destroyed the one who had the power of death, and if God the Father raised him from the dead and exalted him forever to the glory that he had with him before the world even existed, then I ask you, who could ever separate you from the love of that God? Cling to this truth with all your might, brothers and sisters. Shall tribulation separate you from your king who never changes and who reigns forever over all things? Shall distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Oh, what an unshakable sense of security for the bride of Christ. And just think of how different your life would be if you lived every day with that unshakable sense of security in the love of King Jesus for you. The stock market crashes and wipes out your 401k. You can smile and say, that cannot separate me from the love of Christ my king owns the wealth of this entire world. If I have him, I have everything I need forever. My treasure is in heaven. It is in him, not down here where moth and rust and stock markets destroy or where thieves break in and steal. No, my heart is with my king. That's where my treasure is. 
or when the doctor says it's cancer, you have four to six months, and through the tears you can say with full confidence, I am loved by my king. Death itself cannot separate me from his love. This temporary dark cloud will in fact free me from the things below. It will lead me closer to the lover of my soul. And it will turn my gaze from this muddy earth to the everlasting joys that await me in the presence of my king. Or when your husband abandons you emotionally, your marriage feels loveless and hopeless, through your tears, you can say with full confidence, I am loved by my king. Indeed, I have a husband who will never fail me and who will fully satisfy forever the greatest longings of my soul. Nothing can separate me from his love. Oh, how different your life would be if you lived every day with the unshakable sense of the love that King Jesus has for you. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But here's the answer to the question. What can separate us? Who's going to condemn? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Mark that word in. In all these things. It's not just after all these things pass, but it is in all these things you are more, in, more than conquerors through Christ. Verse 38, for I am sure Paul is a man speaking with this unshakable sense of security in the love of Christ. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, brothers and sisters, to live all of life with the unshakable sense of security in King Jesus the one whose throne is forever and the one who God the Father calls God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these words. They have been such a blessing to my soul. Father, I want to live moment by moment basking in the love of your Son for me. Father, I pray that you would grant me that. I pray that you would grant my brothers and sisters that. And I pray that living in light of the love of your Son would just transform their lives. I pray that it would give them an eternal perspective. I pray that it would give them joy. Oh, Father, do a miracle in our hearts this morning. And I ask this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.